Welcome. The peace revolution now continues. It's a dream. So believe it. Now get ready to receive it. There is a peaceful solution. It's called the peace revolution. Welcome to the Peace Revolution Podcast. I'm your host and navigator, Richard Grove, and this is where we step out of the confusion, fear, and anxiety of life to relax into some knowledge-based conversation, empowering your perspectives, and inspiring comprehensive understanding. We do this because the truth cannot be told. It must be realized. Thanks for tuning in. This is all part of the Peace Revolution's million-dollar education. It's how we employ the use of cyberspace to help each other learn how to think instead of trying to tell each other what to think. It's a form of systematic wisdom. It's simple, sustainable, effective solutions. The Peace Revolution is brought to you commercial-free thanks to it being a public service project of TragedyAndHope.com. Today's conversation features the root causes of our culture of consumption, exposing how our education system was deliberately changed and why critical thinking was removed from the curriculum. Today's tour demonstrates both the problems and the solutions, leaving you well-armed with contextual history, knowledge, and understanding so that you can learn Likewise, share the wisdom with others. But first, I'd like to start off by inviting those of you who are interested enough to take action to join us for post-podcast discussions, research, and postings. Simply send your request to editors at tragedyandhope.com and we'll send you an invitation to participate in the group, which is a community forum specifically created to be a fear-free zone of mutual respect, wherein individuals exploring can share their explorations together, empowering each other with cooperative understanding. I'd like to welcome back the listeners of the 9-11 Synchronicity Podcast and thank them for hanging in there since 2006. Feel free to subscribe to this podcast at peacerevolution.org. Also, if you're a media producer, please feel free to share, post, and republish this podcast to your network as well. That's why we're here, to share the empowering realizations herein with everyone who can hear it. Accordingly, I'd like to welcome the audiences and thank the hosts of the following solution-based independent media sites for promoting the Peace Revolution podcast to their respective networks. First up's Maria Heller, M-E-R-I-A dot net. And if you don't know her yet, she was the first to make the transition from radio to internet subscription broadcasting. She's been doing it for 10 years, granting you access to her exclusive archive of over 3,000 interviews. And what we've learned from her interviews over the years is beyond words, so it's definitely something you have to experience for yourself to get it. Speaking of the experience, I'd like to welcome the audience of Jan Irvin's Gnostic Media Podcast, weighing in at about 100,000 subscribers. Jan's interviewed some of the most interesting authors, academics, and scholars in the world, and his books are a pretty interesting read as well. Thanks to Jan and more from him in a few minutes. I'd also like to thank and acknowledge the inspiration provided by James Evan Pilato and his MediaMonarchy.com podcast, as well as James Corbett, who publishes his CorbettReport.com podcasts from Japan. By leveraging their consistent pulse of publication, keeping up to date with current events is easy. Their respective podcasts are a synergistic fit to all the work we've churned out since 2006, and it just keeps getting better. Thanks, guys. The content on the sites I just mentioned are impeccable, and my experiences have led me to observe the hosts demonstrating genuine intent through their actions of the highest integrity. What's more, I've found their audiences to be astute observers and vigilant researchers. It inspires me to see all of our work cross-pollinating and likewise inspiring the mega audience of these combined streams of consciousness. Thank you for sharing this show with anyone you think 
might want to know. This second episode of the Peace Revolution builds upon the last and propels us into the next. Joining us on the line today via Skype, Jan Irvin in California, host of the Gnostic Media Podcast. In Vancouver, we've got Paul Verge, director of the Hijacking Humanity film series and the anxiously awaited Believers Beware, part of his trilogy of documentaries illustrating how we've allowed the status quo to become farcical and ridiculous due to the absence of critical thinking, wherein he proposes how we could effectively learn our way out of such problems. We've also got Rick Malko in Phoenix, a member of the Tragedy and Hope community, who's joining us via the good old-fashioned telephone. Last and certainly not least, here with me in studio is Lisa Arberczewski, publisher of Tragedy and Hope magazine. And during today's journey, we will be giving you the gift of the trivium, an idea which, when realized through your observation, will truly yield unto you something priceless without costing you any money. So settle in, relax, perhaps take some notes, and before you know it, you'll be getting stronger just by listening. Let's continue the peace revolution. So if we do a little recap of episode one, we took a look at the status quo. We observed that there's a knowledge deficit, which equates to what we observe or feel as confusion. We noted that there's bad logic and that this is everywhere and that we need to raise our standards of reasoning. We need some metric of reasoning and making decisions that reflect what's actually going on in reality. So this is all reflection of our inability to validate our own reasoning. Otherwise, marketing and advertising wouldn't be so effective in a consumption-based economy, because advertising is based on fear, guilt, desire, not logic, reason, and wisdom. We also planned action by stepping out of the herd mentality. We participated in a Peace Revolution Episode 1, which is designed to bridge the gap, to insulate you from propaganda so you can start to regain an informed and balanced perspective. We also learned about John Taylor Gatto's seven lessons, starting with the fact that teachers are taught to teach confusion as a primary lesson. Well, we learned that teaching means a lot of things in different places, but that seven lessons are universally taught from Harlem to Hollywood Hills. And as you said, the first is confusion. The next, class position, indifference, emotional dependency, intellectual dependency, provisional self-esteem, and then one can't hide. I love the one with provisional self-esteem where you can't feel good about yourself unless the teacher gives you approval. That's not damaging to any kids. <laughs> In the form of a gold star or a lollipop. You either, you're either a monetary value or some sugar. You're a number in a grade book. Yep. Producer and a consumer. We also rediscovered Dorothy Sayers' 1947 Oxford lecture on the lost tools of learning wherein we learned that every subject has its own grammar or knowledge of the basic facts and fundamental rules of the individual parts, its own logic, the knowledge of the interrelationships between these facts and how they're all organized and how the rules about how they all fit together. Every subject also has its own rhetoric, which is the wisdom in verbally or symbolically expressing and practically applying through communication that which you've learned. So as we've learned, these three steps comprise a natural learning process which applies from everything from language to using a cell phone or a computer or learning any other new subject. So it's actually the natural process of how we learn as human beings, and it's broken down into these three steps of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And those three things really equip you with the ability to learn how to learn so that instead of getting stuck when you face something that you don't understand or don't know about and seeking some other authority, you can actually feel confident that you ha- you're equipped with the skills and the tools to go and find the answers out yourself. 
Sure. To read from Gino Denning's email, he writes, We are now witnessing the accumulating negative effects of omitting the three means of learning how to learn, which constitute the integrated classical trivium. The trivium is presented to methodically gather raw factual data into a coherent body of knowledge, then to gain understanding of that body by systematically eliminating all stated contradictions within it, and finally, to wisely express and utilize that valid knowledge and understanding in the objective real world. Once a student is conversant with this threefold procedural pattern, he is now capable of teaching himself how to learn any established subject such as mathematics, geometry, musical theory, astronomy, etc. In other words, through the process of learning how to learn, he learns how to critically and creatively think for himself. This last sentence sums up the process. We use our creative thought capacity to solve the problem or find ways to take advantage of the opportunity. This makes a person a first-hand independent thinker rather than remaining a second-hand dependent thinker. In not relying on his own organized thoughts, a second-hand thinker has his mental content filled by various so-called authorities like the mass media and its advertising, professionals and politicians, some of whom may be unscrupulous, officials both benign and despotic in schools and in the workplace. And yet we've discovered that this is the exact framing of knowledge and how to process knowledge that was taken out of our education system in America, at least. With Dorothy Sayers and her lamenting of the loss of the trivium, the use of grammar, logic, and rhetoric as a systematic process to discern certainty and to find facts in today's world, we're left in this fog of educational folly and we realize that we have a need for a compass something that can help us we can't see anything else for direction we need to rely on a mechanized process that runs on rules and laws of logic and reason and responsibility and start to discern for ourselves and have this as a tool so that we can have a proverbial bullshit detector and be able to articulate and print out a report and say here's exactly why I'm calling bullshit pardon my French and casting doubt upon a fallacious argument, for example. So we find that logic is the means of thinking without contradiction. This idea of ability to navigate with certainty reminds me of this passage that's in Plato's Republic. It's in Book 6, 484a to 502c. famous quote is, Don't you think that a true captain would be called a real stargazer, a babbler, and a good-for-nothing by those who sail in ships governed in that way? And what he's talking about is ships of state, ships of confusion, right? And he compares the situation of a ship, representing a ship of state, Athens in his time, America and ours, on which the owner is hard of hearing, has poor vision, and lacks seafaring skills. All the sailors on the ship quarrel over who should be captain, though they know nothing about navigation. In lieu of any skill, they make use of brute force and clever tricks to get the ship owner to choose them as captain. Whoever is successful at persuading the ship owner to choose him is called a, quote, navigator, a, quote, captain, and, quote, one who knows ships. Anyone else is called useless. These sailors have no idea that there is a craft of navigation or any knowledge to master in order to steer ships. In this scenario, Socrates points out, the true captain, the man who knows the craft of navigation, i.e. the trivium, would be called a useless stargazer. The few who are good philosophers, those whose natures were somehow not corrupted, are considered less useless because society has become antithetical to correct ideals. The point is, 
anyone who has knowledge of how to navigate, i.e. to discern fact from fiction, to find understanding without contradiction, to have a path of discerning certainty, such as the trivium, would not be seen or recognized from the public's perspective as being a wise or responsible captain, navigator, politician, etc. So why is this? Why are the people who use clever tricks, sophisticated tactics of persuasive speech, brute force, etc., constantly in control of our world's greatest resources? How does that come about? And why has it been going on since Plato talked about it 2,500 years ago? Clever public relations makes people not care about things that are duly provided to them. So if they're comfortable with their state of affairs and they have relatively easy and reasonably cheap access to the resources, food, and everything that they need, then when you're more relaxed and not in survival mode, you're probably more prone to taking in any advertising or PR, especially when you haven't been given those critical thinking skills. Sure, so fear comes into it. If if there's a lack of fear, then there's a lack of motivation on your part to participate in that consumer activity. And then there's the other point which would be it's not like the people for the past 2500 years have had the trivium at their fingertips and just not used it for the most part it's been suppressed and the persuasive speech and the rhetoric have been held among an elite group an elite group who have been educated through an elite system created specifically to give them the effective use of rhetoric empowered in such a way that they can out argue anyone else and that's where they're getting their power from in addition to the brute force Yeah, if you can control the discourse and can control the parameters of dialogue, then in a sense you really can guide either two or three different sides of of an argument towards what you want, as long as they're all relating to what your ultimate goal is, and that's, that's the whole idea of a dialectic, right? Sure, it's a teleological concept, so it's, it has an end purpose. So we understand that these are all foundations for learning and discerning in all other areas of research and exploration. These things are applicable and they're invaluable to anyone who thinks. They're invaluable to anyone who makes decisions, ever. It's invaluable to anyone who wants free choice because you can't make informed and balanced decisions without critical thinking. And so it's not only a process of how to learn, it's how to learn to think critically and process things logically such that you can find certainty. And then you're going to start getting the reactions from your actions. The causalities are going to be the consequences that you expect, the consequences that you desire. This is the traction that everyone's looking for, not only in a research community where you're looking for answers, but in life where you're looking for progress and you want to get ahead of other people and and make your living and, and provide for your family. These are the things that are lacking that will help people get reemployed over someone else who has an equal or greater amount of experience because the experience of knowing this trivium allows you to learn the job easier than somebody else, allows you to progress through things you know, more easily. So really it's, uh, it's widely applicable and useful to anyone who can grasp its tenets. And its main tenant is logic? Well, I'd say the main tenet is knowing how to read and reading because Mark Twain said the man who can read and doesn't has no advantage over the man who can't read. So it's the same thing Alan Dulles said after the JFK assassination. The American public doesn't read. That's why they're going to buy into the Warren Commission. And it's about not only being able to read, but understanding the structure of the words, understanding what the words mean, understanding how the sentences are, are put together, and getting a clear picture of the words. And the last part of the recap was uh, we had talked about the great observation within the great conversation. So the observation was 
we've noticed the disappearance of the liberal education, and we'll define what a liberal education is in a minute. The consequence is that the general population, everyone who's been through public school and public colleges, has a loss of critical thinking. This is a blind spot where advertisers and marketers prey on us and they get us to consume things we don't need that we're buying because of our emotions and that they're not reasonable or logical or anything that we would buy without those advertisements playing upon our emotions. The result is that we have a large population that are not equipped to discern fact from fiction with any degree of certainty or repetition. And I would say that proof of this is in the trillions that are being stolen and and people are doing nothing about it. And not not only that, but people consuming at such a rate, you know, they're basically feeding the beast, right? By falling prey to all the advertising and marketing, they buy a lot of crap they don't need and then they get jobs that they don't like and borrow money they don't need to pay that stuff off so they can repeat the cycle all over again. Well, it's money they need, but it's definitely money they don't have, and it's money they can't afford to pay back, more importantly. Exactly. Kids are born with logic, and they start to argue, and they identify topoi and do this whole thing, and they don't even know what they're doing. So it's innate to humans. You don't have to teach this. People know it. It's just the structure they're lacking. Absolutely. The ability to think is is hardwired into us. It's it's that it's codified into a certain type of program through the modern education system as it exists now, right? You're basically prepped for a lifetime of eight hours or something you don't enjoy being forced to have this authority in front of you for 12 years. Right, and it's this whole oppression system that's there to get you into this little box and to worship the system and their rule and their leader up at the front of the classroom or up at the front of the state or the country or whatever it may be. And they have uh, bells that tell you when to go to different classes and when to go to lunch. And like Pavlov's dogs, every time they set those bells off, the kids jump up and off they go. And... uh you know, this is a whole systematic method of controlling and limiting logic and people's ability to critically think and to question what the leaders are doing. Anyway, the idea is to give people the tools to fill in and undo the damage that the schools have done and to teach people how to critically think without the bell, when to go to lunch, when to do all of that stuff that is, is just conditioning for them to be lifetime servants in some factory or office building i've noticed as a parent that talking with my child that you know children have their own built-in set of logic and understanding and that from a pretty early age i don't know if it's the not the laziness of parents but they just don't have enough energy but definitely in the schools they do learn that if you do ask a question you can get shunned or in trouble and that's part of the conditioning is to dissuade critical thinking which is really you know asking questions a bunch of questions they tell the kids because I said so, as it, which which actually breaks logic. Capitulate to authority. Exactly. They they give up uh, the idea of any critical thinking because the authority told them this is the way it is, so just accept it. And that does a lot of damage to the idea of critical thinking, where you're you're conditioned with the idea that if I do employ critical thinking, I get in trouble, and so so you, the brain actually works to kind of avoid that area. Whereas the classical method or the trivium, success is, is measured 
in producing appropriately critical, creative, self-sufficient individuals, I'm reading from Jean O'Denning's email, who become equipped to attract intellectual abundance into their lives as well as that which naturally follows from it, material abundance. If a person has not been exposed to this method, it is difficult to communicate to him the serenity of mind and self-assurance caused by this competence to appropriately validate one's own thinking as well as the thinking and doctrines of others. No amount of personal counseling or therapy can generate the self-esteem of having the ability to orient one's body and mind in the world through what is his most distinguishing attribute, that of his own rational thinking applied in a systemic manner. The point being a person who's capable of standing on his own two feet. Yeah, and, and my point would be that you get knocked down from both the parents, the teachers, these authority figures that, that you have from a very young age when you do actually employ proper critical thinking, which is like almost hardwired into you as a child, you're saying, why does this happen? What, what does this mean? Why does this happen? And the authorities almost get annoyed with how much energy you're devoting to critical thinking that they, they restrain you with, you know, just shut up. Don't ask me questions. If you keep asking, you're, you're annoying. And that's, it gets drilled into you to, to not, uh, not ask questions. It also provides a mental self-defense mechanism because what's the point of defending yourself physically if you can't defend yourself mentally from all these different stimuli which are prevalent throughout our modern day society marketing advertising effective rhetoric from politicians salesmen lawyers etc and this brings us back to john taylor gatto's the underground history of education wherein he's pointing to not only the problems with the education system but when you get into how did this happen to our education system the people and groups he's pointing to are also the same groups behind eugenics and a bunch of other things that are not friendly to humanity that we should all be aware of. And I thought there was a couple pages in there where he really kind of brings it together. And since his work is pretty mainstream and people get that there's a problem with education, we should also take a couple minutes here before we get deep into what the trivium is and how's it work. Just take a minute uh, and, and look at some of the relevant points and maybe even where the Prussian education system comes from and, and, and these different characters so we can have an idea of what the storyline is before we learn how to use this powerful tool. And who are these guardians of convention or guardians of the status quo? And what are the fallacies that they wield like weapons to use against us? Can we touch on uh, children born with logic? Is it more that they're born with a curious aspect to understand the reality, you know, logic itself is a method that is learned. Yeah, you need to teach it to your children, but they've got this energy, this desire to learn, like a sponge, right? And you can take right. that and you can mold it into a box, which is what the schooling system is. And when they try and expand past it, you're like, no, you're supposed to stay in this box. Or you can do something like homeschooling or private schooling. Or the few kids that get a so-called liberal education are the ones who get put into these what are called prep schools or private schools where they are taught critical thinking and all this stuff coupled with the fact that you're special you're above these regular kids in public school and you're going to have the edge above them right so it's this idea of superiority is instilled from a young age well if i might just use a quick example we'll call it lego my ego and i'll apply the trivium to the process of teaching a child how to use legos the grammar would be showing the child the individual the different types of blocks the logic would be showing them how these blocks can stick together and you can build different structures 
the rhetoric is actually taking a bunch of these blocks and building different little buildings with the child or having the child learn to do that on their own. And by showing them these three steps, these are the same three steps that they would innately learn anyway. We're just giving them proper nomenclature so that people can understand the power of grammar, logic, and rhetoric working as a system of discernment within your mind and how you see things every day because it allows you to, as I said before, so eloquently detect the bullshit, which is what we all need. There's so much information. This is an information age. But how do we know what's fact and what's fiction and what's reality and what's illusion and what's real and affects us and what's fear used to sell us? We need that system back more now than ever. And we have to realize that taking responsibility for the fact that we instill a lot of fallacies into our children from a very young age. Like we teach them a lot of lies and then shatter because those I said lies so. for them. Because I said so. You know, instead of I buy you presents for Christmas to to justify the commercialism, you create a third party character that Coca Cola created, and say no, it's this guy who comes and delivers this to you. It, all, it's funny that all the secret characters that we create for our children all revolve around money or gifts or commerce, <laughs> and are given to them during this critical stage. Dorothy Sayers suggested that every child goes through the three stages of development. First, a grammar stage, wherein the child absorbs factual information like a sponge from the time that they're born until about 10 years old. And then a logic stage follows when the child is more inquisitive and analytical. And then in their teens, early teens, begins their rhetoric stage when they're more creative and expressive. So you could say the children have a built-in kind of understanding like if you want to go back to the lego example if you just plop a kid down in front of a bunch of lego and just watched him for two hours the kid will probably figure out how the lego works they might not build something but they'll they'll figure out you know this stuff sticks together oh you can fit these kind of pieces together and you know what i mean it's just interesting that there's these certain elements of logic and understanding at least that are built in Right, and that we have the ability to take that energy and can, and put it in one direction or another, and uh, because the state offers us this easy way out, which is we'll give you and your kids this public free education. It's got all the subjects. It's got the physical education. It's got everything you need. You don't have to take on that responsibility any longer. And people abscond to that. What could be wrong with that? My taxes are going towards something positive. My children get to go to camp. And they get to get socialized and learn about the hierarchy of things. Right. So I guess I didn't understand. I mean, I had gone through the education system and I thought it worked really well and I was really smart. And I obviously found the error in my ways years ago and have been trying to uh, rectify that. And along the way, I come across this book by John Taylor Gatto called The Underground History of Education. And I was like, oh, what's this all about? And not really too sure about it. And it took me a long time before I read it because I didn't think it was pertinent. I didn't think I needed to read it right away. And then I started reading, and, and he's not only on to, hey, here's the problem with American education. Here's the problem with these societies and these groups and these endowments and these nonprofit international organizations who are shaping and dictating how our kids are being trained, conditioned, programmed by way of Skinner and Pavlovian techniques. Highly concentrated psychological tactics and all these things are playing an adverse role in the education. And I thought some of the interesting parts of the book were where Gatto ties in the people and the groups like uh, Cecil Rhodes and some of the history behind the Fabian Socialists, etc., who were so instrumental in the early 20th century 
in shaping British, Canadian, and American education systems. Now, once upon a time, there was only one place in the world where you could get diamonds, and it was in this remote part of India. And it wasn't until the 1700s that they found diamonds in Africa. And one of the most notorious characters of the 1800s who was in control of many of the South African diamond mines was this character from Britain named Cecil Rhodes, who was a student of a scholar named John Ruskin. Cecil Rhodes, upon his death, left this will, and this will is recorded in a book called The Last Will and Testament of Cecil John Rhodes with elucidatory notes by William T. Stead. William T. Stead invented something called the interview back in the 1800s. He later died on the Titanic, but between those two events, he wrote this book, and he prints out Cecil Rhodes' will, where Cecil Rhodes says, I want part of my fortune to go to these Rhodes scholarships, whereby we will control the top academic minds all over the world, and uh, we will use this for the purpose of creating a British-American transnational union, a one-world government without sovereignty of any particular countries anymore. It would all be under the British crown. And he specified that it should be a secret society based on the architecture of the Jesuit organization. So if you know anything about the Jesuit organization, you know that they're very successful in many areas that would be interesting if you were creating a secret society to take over the world. So that all being read, when I found John Taylor Gatto talking about Cecil Rhodes and the Fabian Socialists, and the idea of the Fabian Socialists goes back to Rome, so it goes back a couple thousand years, and it's a very successful strategy uh, allegedly used and wielded upon Hannibal. But we'll get into that in a minute. Well, now that we have some context, <laughs> I'm reading from page 147, and it reads, An actual scheme of dissident entrapment was the brainchild of J.P. Morgan, his unique contribution to the Cecil Rhodes-inspired roundtable group. Morgan contended that revolution could be subverted permanently by infiltrating the underground and subsidizing it. In this way, the thinking of the opposition could be known as it developed and fatally compromised. Corporate, government, and foundation cash grants to subversives might be one way to derail the train of insurrection that Hegelian theory predicted would arise against every ruling class. As this practice matured, the insights of Fabian socialism were stirred into the mix, gradually a socialist leveling through practices pioneered in Bismarck's Prussia came to be seen as the most efficient control system for the masses, the bottom 80% of the population in advanced industrial states. For the rest, an invigorating system of laissez-faire market competition would keep the advanced breeding stock on its toes. Skipping ahead to page 149 under the Fabian spirit, to speak of scientific management in school and society without crediting the influence of the Fabians would do great disservice to truth. But the nature of Fabianism is so complex it raises questions this essay cannot answer. To deal with the Fabians in a brief compass, as I'm going to do, is to deal necessarily in simplifications in order to see a little how this charming group of scholars, writers, heirs, heiresses, scientists, philosophers, trust fund babies, and successful men and women of affairs became the most potent force in the creation of the modern welfare state, distributors of its characteristically dumbed-down version of schooling. 
Yet pointing only to this often frivolous organization's eccentricity would be to disrespect the incredible accomplishments of Beatrice Webb and her associates and their decisive effort on schooling. Although far from the only potent organization working behind the scenes to radically reshape domestic and international life, it would not be too far out of line to call the 20th century the Fabian century. One thing is certain, the direction of modern schooling for the bottom 90% of our society has followed a largely Fabian design, and the puzzling security and prestige enjoyed at the moment by those who speak of globalism and multiculturalism are a direct result of heed paid earlier to Fabian prophecies that a welfare state, followed by an intense focus on internationalism, would be the mechanism elevating corporate society over political society and a necessary precursor to utopia. Fabian theory is the das Kapital of financial capitalism. For the poor, the working classes, and middle classes in the American sense, this change in outlook, lauded by the most influential minds of the 19th century, was a catastrophe of titanic proportions, especially for government school children. Children could no longer simply be parents' darlings. Many were biologically a racial menace. The rest had to be thought of as soldiers in genetic combat, the moral equivalent for war. For all but a relative handful of favored families, aspiration was off the board as a scientific proposition. Fabianism came into existence around the year 1884, taking its name from Roman general Fabius Maximus, who preserved the Roman state by defeating Hannibal, chipping away at Hannibal's patience and will to win by avoiding combat. Fabius used a strategy known as the War of Attrition. Instead of attacking Hannibal's forces head-on, Fabius would sneak around and attack their supply lines and sneak on the rear and go around, do all these sort of guerrilla tactics, wearing out Hannibal, and then he became dictator afterwards, twice. <laughs> so it's a very popular strategy, continued to be used to this day. You might see that tactic carried out by the Vietnamese or the Iraqis or the Afghanistan indigenous peoples. Fabian practitioners developed Hegelian principles, which they co-taught alongside Morgan bankers and other important financial allies over the first half of the 20th century. One insightful Hegelianism was that to push ideas efficiently, it was necessary first to co-opt both political left and political right. Adversarial politics, competition, was a loser's game. By infiltrating all major media, by continual low-intensity propaganda, by massive changes in group orientations accomplished through principles developed in the psychological warfare bureaus of the military, and with the ability, using government intelligence agents and press contacts, to induce a succession of crises, they accomplished that astonishing feat. The Open Conspiracy when I speak of Fabianism, or of any particular Fabians, actual or virtual, like Kurt Lewin, once head of Britain's Psychological Warfare Bureau, or R.D. Lang, once staff psychologist at the Tavistock Institute, I have no interest in mounting a polemic against this particular conceit of the comfortable intelligentsia. Fabian strategy and tactics have been openly announced and discussed with clarity for nearly a century, whether identified as Fabian or not, Nothing illegal about it. I do think it a tragedy, however, that government school children are left in the dark about the existence of influential groups with complex social agendas aimed at their lives. 
So there's these groups out there, international groups that have been shaping our children's educations for the past at least 100 years. And they're basically pointing a gun that is ignorance at our children every day and purposely keeping them confused, keeping them with provisional self-esteem and keeping them overall dumbed down. And so part of what we're talking about with this trivium as a tool for learning is not only how to learn, but how to protect ourselves and our children and our whole families and our friends, because this is what's lacking in our culture that lets all these mysterious crashes of the fiscal nature, et cetera, all these, all these other things go on because we are not able to think critically. And so it's about replacing this and learning some of the history. Now, we learned about Fabius Maximus versus Hannibal and the War of Attrition. There's also what Jan mentioned earlier as the Prussian system of education, which actually comes from the Indian caste systems. So it goes back thousands of years, and it's still being used today, only not in India. It's being used on American and Canadian and British school children. The next paragraph, he goes on to say, I've neglected to tell you so far about the role stress plays in Fabian evolutionary theory. Just as Hegel taught that history moves faster toward its conclusion by way of warfare, so evolutionary socialists were taught by Hegel to see struggle as the precipitant of evolutionary improvement for the species, a necessary purifier eliminating the weak from the breeding sweepstakes. Society evolves slowly toward social efficiency all by itself. Society under stress, however, evolves much faster. Thus, the deliberate creation of crisis is an important tool of evolutionary socialists. And that's what we're talking about with Fabian socialists. These are people who have ideas of Darwin and eugenics and manipulating the evolution of the human species by way of a war of attrition that has been waged effectively for the past hundred years at least and is only now being recognized, which is why we thought it's so important to invest all of this attention and energy. And even though it might be a little bit pedantic, we want to be sure that everyone has an opportunity to understand each step of this as we're presenting it and introducing uh, the ideas of how it got taken out of our education system in the first place. Well, and it gets better. Continuing in Gatto's book, The Underground History of Education, on page 153, the London School of Economics is a Fabian creation. Mick Jagger spent time there. So did John F. Kennedy. Once elitist, The Economist, now a worldwide pop intellectual publication, is Fabian, as is The New Statesman and Ruskin Labor College of Oxford. The legendary Royal Institute of International Affairs and the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, premier mind-bending institutions of the world, are Fabian. I just feel like I have to interject for a second because there were so many things that set off red flags in that single paragraph. First, the London School of Economics and The Economist are run by the Rothschild banking family, and, and more on that in a second. The Ruskin Labor College at Oxford was created for John Ruskin, who was Cecil Rhodes's teacher, and it was Cecil Rhodes's last will and testament that created the Royal Institute of International Affairs and the American Council on Foreign Relations as well as the Tavistock Institute for Human Relations. So, with Cecil Rhodes having Rothschild backing through his ventures in the 1800s, and Rothschild banking family members now being in control of not only the De Beers diamond mines, but The Economist, and let me just go through what The Economist group actually is. The Economist group is a group of companies that sell publications and services under The Economist brand, such as The Economist, Economist.com, Economist Intelligence Unit, and the group's other global brands include CFO, 
Chief Financial Officer Magazine, a publication for senior financial executives, as well as Roll Call and Congressional Quarterly, which are the publications that are given out and read by every senator, congressman, staff, chief of staff. Everyone in our legislative system uses magazines and journals controlled by The Economist Group. Controlling interest of The Economist Group is owned by individuals, including members of the Rothschild Banking family of England. So let me take a quick minute to make it real for you. Sir Evelyn de Rothschild, member of the Rothschild banking family. It was not until age 26 that he decided to join N.M. Rothschild and Sons Banking House to be trained in the family's business. In 1961, his father retired as the head of the bank and cousin Victor Rothschild took over as chairman. In 1968, Evelyn de Rothschild was appointed a director of Paris-based de Rothschild Frères, the Rothschild brothers, while Guy de Rothschild of the French branch of the family became a partner at N.M. Rothschilds and Sons in England. In 1976, he took over as bank chairman from Victor Rothschild and in 1982 became chairman of Rothschild's Continuation Holdings AG, the coordinating company for the Merchant Banking Group. He became co-chairman of Rothschild Bank AG, Zurich, in 1994, serving until 2003 when he oversaw the merger of the family's French and UK banking houses. David René de Rothschild of the French branch took over as executive chairman of Rothschild International after the different branches had been merged, and Sir Evelyn continued as non-executive chairman of N.M. Rothschild & Sons. Eco-environmental guru David de Rothschild is the son of Sir Evelyn de Rothschild. So that gives us some pause as to his participation as the Jesus figure of the global warming movement. In 2003, Sir Evelyn founded with his wife, Lynn Forrester de Rothschild, a holding company to manage their investments in The Economist and various enterprises in India. Throughout his career, Evelyn de Rothschild has been actively involved in a number of organizations in both the private and public sectors and has held the following business positions. He has been a governor at the London School of Economics and Political Science which Gatto just mentioned in his book. He has been the chairman of The Economist from 1972 to 1989. He has been a director of De Beers Consolidated Diamond Mines from 1977 to 1994, and he's also been a director of IBM United Kingdom Holdings Limited from 1972 to 1995. So these are the Fabians that are being alluded to within the pages of John Taylor Gatto's The Underground History of Education. Continuing on page 153... You needn't carry a card or even have heard the name Fabian to follow the wolf in sheep's clothing flag. Fabianism is mainly a value system with progressive objectives. Its social club aspect isn't for coal miners, farmers, or steam fitters. We've all been exposed to many details of the Fabian program without realizing it. In the United States, some organizations heavily influenced by Fabianism are the Ford Foundation, the Stanford Research Institute, the Carnegie Endowments, the Wharton School, and RAND. And this short list is illustrative, not complete. Tavistock underwrites or has intimate relations with 30 research institutions in the United States, all of which at one time or another have taken a player's hand in the shaping of American schooling. Once again, you need to remember we aren't conspiracy hunting, but tracking an idea, like microchipping a eel to see what holes it swims into in case we want to catch it later on. H.G. Wells, best known of all early Fabians, once wrote of the Fabian project, quote, the political world of the open conspiracy must weaken, efface, incorporate, and supersede existing governments. The character of the open conspiracy 
will then be plainly displayed. It will be a world religion. This large, loose, assimilatory mass of groups and societies will definitely and obviously attempt to swallow up the entire population of the world and become a new human community. The immediate task before all people, a planned world state, is appearing at a thousand points of light, but generations of propaganda and education may have to precede it. H.G. Wells said this comment about a thousand points of light decades before George H.W. Bush said it on September 11th, 1990. The point would be if you go to Google and you type in Fabian Socialism and you click on images, you'll see stained glass windows, you'll see many different representations of the wolf in sheep's clothing. H.G. Wells is pointing to the open conspiracy as they're going to put in this one world government under a new form of religion. I would argue that the new form of religion is the globalism that is the eco-environmental movement where they're telling you that you did this and you have to correct it. Those are the people who are polluting the earth and they're telling us, hey, go clean it up. Go, go take care of the problems that we created. In this case of The Economist, they're putting their own son, David Mayer de Rothschild, in charge of this eco-movement. So if you Google David Mayer de Rothschild at Google, you'll see him giving a speech to the top people in Google Europe talking about how we have to save the planet. What's well, the same people who poisoned the planet? But I digress. Zbigniew Brzezinski, Obama's handler, <laughs> wrote his famous signature book, Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era in 1970, a piece reeking with Fabianisms, dislike of direct popular power, relentless advocacy of the right and duty of evolutionarily advanced nations to administer less developed parts of the world, revulsion at populist demands for selfish self-government, and stress on collectivism. Brzezinski says in his book, quote, it will soon be possible to assert almost continuous control over every citizen and to maintain up-to-date files containing even the most personal details about health and personal behavior of every citizen, in addition to the more customary data. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. Power will gravitate into the hands of those who control information, end quote. In his essay, Brzezinski called common people, quote, an increasingly purposeless mass, end quote. And of course, if the army of children collected in mass schooling is really, quote unquote, purposeless, what argument says it should exist at all? So I have to say I was really impressed by John Taylor Gatto's representation of these complex ideas in their simplest forms. The education system has been changed. There's a group of elite people who have international interests and not thinking of educating your kids at all, but rather trying to subvert the free will of your children, subvert the learning curve of your children, and get them into a purposeless lifestyle where they have to support the consumerism through their blind obedience to whoever is at front of the class or the front of the church or the front of the state. Let's get back to the Prussian education system. Where did it come from? Right, and you mentioned the Prussian system, but before we get into that, we should definitely talk about ancient India because it appears to be the birthplace of the institution that we call the Prussian model. Ancient India the 4th and 3rd millennia BC or possibly earlier, appears to be the birthplace of the institution detailed as the Prussian model. Even the ratios of population specialization were derived from the Indian system of social castes. The Indian Brahmanic system specified four hereditary castes in descending order of, quote, cleanliness, unquote. Their term, in fact, the entire system was based on varying levels of education, and the four were the Brahmin caste, the Kshastriya caste, the Vaishya caste, and the Shudra caste. 
And those pretty much go in order of the most clean, the most holy, down to the most menial, the most kind of laborious. You can almost look at like it for, as a chessboard, right? The the Brahmin caste is the bishops or the holy class. The Kshastriya is like the heroic kings or warriors, the figures of power. The Vaisha caste is like the uh, merchants and artisans, so the people who are kind of in charge of material wealth. And then the Shudra class is just the servants and the laborers who weren't really educated that much, and they did all the, the menial labor. And they were known to be about 87% of the population, which is funny because in Tavistock Institution, I don't know if it was polls, but experiments in the, in the 1930s, they discerned that 87% of the population do, in fact, not use critical thinking. And they, they basically parrot the opinions of, of other people. And they operate with that knowledge when publicizing events. So One thing I mentioned in relation to Tavistock Institute and the caste system or Prussian system of education is that if you check Amazon, there's a Tavistock set of books that goes for $17,000. Uh, each of the each of the individual volumes are like a thousand fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars a piece. The other point would be the book that tells you about Tavistock, other than its reports. The best book we found is by Dr. John Coleman, called the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, and what he describes in there is that it was created before World War One in 1913 at this place called Wellington House, and then with the help of people like Edward Bernays and Walter Lippmann and Kurt Lewin. And a few other prominent psychiatrists and scientists and psychologists, these guys got together and decided that they could use propaganda more effectively if the education system didn't teach kids critical thinking anymore. And thus, over the 20th century, we have become a consumption-based society. Instead of producing, we're consumers, and we're totally consuming products every day that we do not need that we bought because of our lack of realization at the time when we were being advertised to. So to fill yourself in on the Tavistock Institute, its tactics and what it does to our education system, our media system, our political system, our economic system, I would pick up a copy of John Coleman's book. Yeah, I'm sure it's easy to find. And to, to reflect the idea of the caste system as well, or the, you know, the grading of society, Brave New World's an excellent book that kind of, uh, and, and looking into the history of, of Huxley, and eugenicists will also give you uh, many hours of research. So these castes, these four groups of castes, is this the Atlantean system that Gino Denning talks about in the Trivium? The Atlanteans were anybody, you know, Europeans living on the west coast of Europe. Yeah, in this example, he's talking about the birthplace of the Prussian model, like what the, what the Prussian model came from, and it's from this whole caste system where you had the, the, the top Brahmin cast being taught the, the most holy secrets. Think of it like a pyramid, basically. Right, right. right? And, uh, and the classes that go below, there's a bit more people in that class, but they have less knowledge until you have the lowest class, which supports the entire structure, which is the vast majority, 87% of the people, and they're basically uneducated. So, so this idea of a few educated people controlling a bunch of uneducated people is not... A new idea. Well, they're educated to think they're educated, but they're actually l lacking what used to be a liberal education. Exactly. And each level of the caste system is taught additional information that the one below it isn't. That sounds like a system of control. 
Totally. So why would we want to engage our kids into a, an education model, if you can use those terms, for 12 years? That doesn't sound like somebody made a, a truly informed choice. It sounds like that was put out as an edict and everyone was convinced it was a good idea somehow. But I think if we were given all the information up front, none of us would have chosen to educate ourselves or our children in that manner. No, and a lot of it ties back, you know, you can systematically look through the last hundred years and see the rise of these foundations, the creation of this modern nationalized public education system, and then the rise in order to force all the kids into this education system, you had the rise of this version of feminism that got women to work more so that it was easier for them to let go of the kids and put them into these nationalized public education schools. And with, I would say the generation from the 50s onward has pretty much had next to no real solid critical thinking skills and has been ripe for the consumption-based society. So what we're pointing out is that without the knowledge of the structure of A, the trivium, and B, how it got taken out and what replaced it, we're left to identify fallacies in our minds but not being able to put a name on them and give some sort of structure or cogent argument. From the Indian caste system, you see it again in ancient Egypt with the priestly and the warrior castes. And in European society in the Middle Ages, it... Well, it's the, the, the priestly and warrior class, the burgoys and the, and the farmers, the peasants. The bourgeois. Exactly. And it basically repeats like that in, in every modern patriarchal culture. And you talked about Plato earlier. It says in his very readable works titled Republic and Laws, the Greek philosopher Plato thoroughly describes the intricacies and implications of these social divisions. By studying these works, these dialogues, one can see that the contemporary world is still structured in this manner, although under different names and in veiled guises. Right, so I think what we're pointing to is the reason we're taking a long time and trying to really nail this down completely is because this problem has existed for thousands of years and only now do we have the technology and the information with the technology and the communication infrastructure to do all of this it's one thing to have the information it's another thing to understand the information but what we're practicing now is actually the rhetoric of that we're putting all of these things together and trying to get people to understand that the Prussian system of education, well, that's just how the Prussians applied what they found to be a useful control system vis-a-vis -vis controlling people's, we call this the class structure in America, the upper, middle, and lower class. What they're doing is they're getting rid of the middle class, making a huge lower class, and this identifies very closely with the caste system from thousands of years ago, which not only the Prussians, but the British have also used this. I mean, these ideas have been around, they've been effective, but also... The ideas of how to get out of this have been around as well. So why hasn't anyone proliferated the trivium in the past? We'll get to that. Especially when you're living in the information age, you're inundated with information. And yet, if you don't have a system, an operating system of taking in that information and thinking critically about it, deciding for yourself, then you're really left to all of the authorities. And there are plenty of authorities out there that want to tell you how to live your life and what to do with your money, etc. I would say pointing out the fallacy arguments in someone's position, especially an authority figure, allows you to intellectually as opposed to emotionally respond to what they're saying in a way that's not necessarily threatening it's just truthful and it throws the ball back in their court in a way where they have to you know either admit they're using a fallacy or change their position whereas they want you to respond emotionally like a child to get upset at the fact that they're saying something to you or ordering you to do something 
All right, and so you have to ask yourself, am I making this decision based on good reasons and on good evidence and logic, etc.? Or am I being overwhelmed by some vivid evidence or circumstance by someone else's advanced rhetoric? Well, I thought it'd be useful if I posted the logical fallacies, at least a list of them, in the form of a PDF in the Tragedy and Hope community think tank under the Lost Tools of Learning group. And I also was privy to hearing the unedited version of Jan's upcoming interview with Michael Labouzier explaining the fallacies in detail. So what's he what's he go through, Jan? Like 47 or 50 fallacies and explains them in detail? Right. Something like that. It's about two hours. It's a lot more exciting than it sounds. I'll tell you, I learned so much through that. And it's not about memorizing because once you understand each of the fallacies, it kind of comes to life, and it's not something you have to remember so much as when you understand it, you start to see it places in action, on TV, with the politicians, in the advertising. It's all over the place, and once you can recognize it, that's when you can start to actively be aware and defend yourself from those adverse and ill effects of uh, persuasive speech known as sophism, where it's used uh, against you so people can make money from your ignorance. You know, while we're at it, uh, speaking about Michael Lebozier, I'll be having him back on in a couple of weeks again to follow up on the topic, which is very important to understand for mental self-defense, is a talk about the subject and predicate of the sentence structure. And, and basically what it teaches you how to do is when somebody is talking to you or you're reading, you can label the words in your mind, basically become habit once you learn this and you can automatically figure out if the sentence is truthful fallacy or needs more information so it's quite interesting but like you said it sounds boring trying to explain it but the logical fallacy interview does go quite fast and it's a good laugh we had a lot of fun recording it so wait what you're talking about in that interview i found to be kind of like a mental kung fu when you're listening to a politician lay down his rhetoric you have these red flags that go up and then you have this process of thinking and identifying what's going on even in more depth than just identifying fallacies you're actually identifying the structure of how they're putting things together to try to convince you and you have kind of a fighting chance this is kind exactly. of like using the force against them because you know now you're equally empowered and so what you're talking about is like even a self-defense mechanism everything has the trivium incorporated into it so the self-defense mechanism let's say kung fu would have a bunch of individual moves and that would be the grammar and the logic would be these moves put together and then the rhetoric would be you actually sparring with someone else using all these individual moves into a set of fighting tactics the subject and predicates as well as the logical fallacies I think the logical fallacies are easier to learn, and we've heard a lot of them already throughout our lives. And so, you know, we'll recognize things like ad hominem or straw man or red herring and things like that because, you know, th these are pretty common terms that people state. Well, for example, when he talks about false dilemma, I, it resonated with me because immediately I thought about the bailouts, the Fed threatening Congress, right. either pass this bill or and bail out the banks or else. You know, it's all fear-driven. Well, it's Absolute slippery fault. slope. They definitely use slippery slope because they pointed to all this uh, cascading consequences that would follow that didn't necessarily follow as a fear tactic. Right, and by adding the subject and predicate stuff on top of the knowledge of the logical fallacies, you're able to look at each of the words in the sentence and look at even the structure of how the sentence or the paragraph is built. And so it teaches your mind a whole new way of looking at things. Like, you know, this whole sentence structure isn't possible 
impossible. It's completely false. It's a falsely established sentence. Therefore, it can't be valid. And so you have to disregard it. And so it's a whole new level of defense. And as you learn it, you can learn exactly how to do this when somebody is actually talking to you or when you're watching the news or whatever. You can sit there and label what they're saying. Well, I think anyone who watches the news, any of the talking head shows, realizes that as soon as the host starts insulting the guest. Well, I think they don't. I think I, I think they don't. I think that's why those shows have such a large following because so many Americans get caught into the whole rah-rah attitude of those shows and if they weren't effective, they wouldn't even be on. Yeah, I think the people listening to this podcast, if they're not already employing some form of critical thinking, they'll be more inclined to and that'll be one of the more obvious examples that they'll recognize. Like, there's definitely a large segment of the population that is, you could say, willfully ignorant and devoid of the critical thinking, and they'll swallow, you know, whatever's fed to them from the media, right? Right. Well, you, well, and but you also have to realize that a lot of a lot of people are going to be stumbling onto this podcast that have never heard anything like it before. So we need to is- establish as something on a common ground that everybody could begin to see how this stuff works. Because a lot of the art of rhetoric is, is kind of, you know, veiled suggestion. That's kind of how the way the uh, war in Iraq was sold, using fear and veiled suggestion that if we, if we didn't engage in this new type of war, preventative war, that uh, it could actually result in a bunch of people's deaths. It, resu- it would result in a lot of American deaths, which it, it has, but like the idea was do this or else and and it's most often the threats don't come from the actual external source it's always our leaders who are who are offering the most threats and instead of criticizing the threats and going how how legitimate are these threats even when they supposedly catch a terrorist going how legitimate is that terrorist we go oh good our 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 nanny state our nanny government's taking care of us well really what people do is they just spread the gossip they just spread they just spread the fear and everyone's talking about it, but no one is thinking critically about it. No one's really... Like Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, there's no way that you need to light C4 with any type of flame. So the whole fallacy of that is people don't understand what goes on. And when you read the details of what they claim, it makes no sense. And then you see people, like the result was they changed policies at the airports. They're collecting all these liquids that potentially are, are you know hazardous, etc. if they're mixed together. But then they throw them all into the same garbage can like they don't care what's in them anyway because they know it's a fake threat. And so this is how they use the veil of security to actually oppress our freedoms. Well, now what's happened after the underwear bomber is the first thing that I saw on television the other night when they were talking about the new security measures was the groping of, well... Men's crotches? Yeah, it was... Was the groping? That's what they're showing on TV over and over. This the, dude getting wrangled. <laughs> and the body scanners. Well, and it's just like a further invasion of your privacy and the illusion of or false sense of additional security. Because of a lack of critical thinking on behalf of the people. Exactly. I think there's also an, an increased group of uh, vulture like corporate types who sit around waiting for the next you know so-called event to happen 
I saw an ad the other day where they're selling a van with a x-ray scanner so you can drive down the street inside the van and scan people, places, things and see right through and it's all being done under the guise of protection and prevention but really because you need to know what your neighbors are doing you need to see through their walls and know what they're up to because you could be in danger the culture of kids today is they're raised with no sense of privacy and they just put anything on the internet even though they don't understand that a company doing a resume search or an inquiry years from now is going to be able to pull up that stuff again and that's going to be the newest social engineering thing that they push is people who are pro-privacy are going to be like anti-transparency. Yeah, Yeah, anti-security. You obviously want us to get attacked again. They'll paint it as anyone who wants privacy has something to hide. What if your privacy costs lives? Only the state has the right to hide stuff because they have information that terrorists want. But you have information that the state needs to fight terrorism. So if you hide any information... And you can see it building, like you said, with the young people on the internet. It's it's the sense of privacy is being driven out through social engineering, social networking, sorry. Common to get those two mixed up. <laughs> the fact that people are, are enticed into sharing so many details of their lives, even embarrassing material, material that could be used against them, they volunteer. Anyone who looks into Facebook and, the, and its funding sources sees a CIA connection and can see that there's a whole data mining operation going on there, and you have to wonder what the implications are. I think that our education system in Hollywood has everybody in uh, consensus reality, and so there's no individual thought. So all these atrocious things that are happening on our individual liberties are an outcome of the education system and the distraction of our whole reality. As if it's, Which, as if reality's been shoved into a box and told to fit in there. Yeah. Well, and that just makes me think again about John Taylor Gatto's seven lessons of the school teacher. Indifference, emotional dependency, intellectual dependency. But Paul, what you were just talking about in terms of if you are a proponent of privacy, you must have something to hide. The seventh lesson was one cannot hide. I teach students that they are always watched, that each is under constant surveillance, etc. And the meaning of constant surveillance and denial of privacy is that no one can be trusted, that privacy is not legitimate. It basically means you're a suspect until proven that you're not a suspect, which is a complete switch in the way of thinking when it comes to personal freedom and liberty, right? Because you go from being a sovereign or supposedly sovereign individual who has the right to just live their life in peace without being investigated unless you do something wrong to you're always being investigated in case you do something wrong so that you're caught right away. Exactly. And what we've done is we've kind of reached the limit of where Gatto takes us. He was New York school teacher of the year and then he learns that hey, what he's doing is not actually educating. He's not actually teaching kids to learn. He's conditioning them. He gets upset. He leaves and so he describes all of this but he can't really put the point on it and understand that there's this lost tools of learning this trivium and quadrivium method of thinking critically. He's said everything but that, but he's unaware that for thousands of years there has been this system in existence that is used effectively by the people who rule this planet to make sure that we're all under control and not learning, but rather learning to memorize and be conditioned and react favorably to all those things. So we've talked about the trivium and some of its uses and a little bit into its history. And now I think the time has come to compare what has been taken out to what actually exists. Let's compare the trivium and the classical method of how to learn versus today's outcome-based education system and what that's all about. Compare and contrast. Let's take it apart 
and then we'll get deep into the Trivium and show everyone how it works and they'll have it for the rest of their lives. Then perhaps a good place to start is with Ron Sinceri's book, Outcome-Based Education, Understanding the Truth About Education Reform. He asserts, a review of the outcomes coupled with the philosophy of those behind outcome-based education is revealing. Proponents of outcome-based education, or OBE, make the seemingly irresponsible claim that all children can learn everything because at the core of transformational OBE, one doesn't find a core of academics. This seems too absurd to be true, but consider the statements of two OBE proponents. Harvard professor Anthony Odinger, quote, The present traditional concept of literacy has to do with the ability to read and write, but... Do we really want to teach people to do a lot of sums or write when they have a $5 handheld calculator or a word processor? Do we really have to have everybody literate writing and reading in the traditional sense? Did you ever think you'd see the day when a professor from Harvard would suggest that writing and math are not important? Couple this with the following quote where we see the interests of business specifically represented. Thomas B. Sticked President and Senior Scientist, Applied Behavioral and Cognitive Sciences, Inc., San Diego, California, a member of the U.S. Secretary of Labor's Commission on Achieving Necessary Skills, says this, quote, Many companies have moved operations to places with cheap, relatively poorly educated labor. What may be crucial, they say, is the dependability of a labor force and how well it can be managed and trained not its general educational level, although a small cadre of highly educated creative people is essential to innovation and growth. Ending discrimination and changing values are probably more important than reading and moving low-income families into the middle class. How ironic. What Sticht is really saying is that we need more low-wage laborers in America. The only way to keep a pool of them available is to be sure that most students do not get educated. As long as the masses are poor and uneducated, the small cadre of highly educated creative people can control them and have the kind of life they want. Sticht is calling for preparing a workforce with limited learning for lifelong labor. Recognize this position for what it is. Either Sticht is a willing dupe who actually believes in the goodness of the small cadre, or he is part of the small cadre and vying for power. You decide. The current administration in the White House is in lockstep with Sticht and those of like mind. Another example, Hillary Clinton was on the board of directors for the National Center on Education and the Economy. This group was established by the Carnegie Organization, the engine driving social change through education in this country. In June 1990, this group published a report called America's Choice, High Skills or Low Wages. This report calls for reformers to connect labor with education. On page two, referring to America's business community, the report says, the system is managed by a small group of educated planners and supervisors who do the thinking for the organization. They plan strategy, implement changes, motivate the workers and solve the problems. Extensive administration procedures allow managers to keep control of a large number of workers. Most employees under this model need not be educated. It is far more important that they are reliable, steady, and willing to follow directions. 
I might add that the Pentagon, you know, even our national defense of which hundreds of billions of dollars go into that, the Department of Defense and the Pentagon take their orders from think tanks like Rand Corporation, which were ultimately created by Tavistock, a British entity, for the purpose of controlling our political policies, our diplomacy, and ultimately whether or not the United States and its resources, personal and material, are engaged in war overseas which benefit these international corporations. He goes on to say that more than 70% of the jobs in America will not require a college education by the year 2000. Clearly, this was written prior to 2000. But the summary is that outcome-based education is in the benefit of these corporations and not in the benefit of our friends, families, and ourselves to be learning like that. Rick, what kind of example could you give for the audience of the trivia method of learning versus the outcome-based education or the Prussian model of education? Well, let's say someone could teach you a song or an instrument, you know, using outcome-based education. You could be shown where to put your fingers um, and mechanically how to get through the song by using small portions and then keep working, you know, one portion at a time until the song is learned. You can learn this song faster than if you use the trivium method. The uh, trivium method is the opposite of outcome-based education. So what if you wanted to learn another song? Under outcome-based education, you would need to be taught, dependent on someone to teach and guide you through the process of learning another song. Outcome-based education creates intellectual cripples dependent on a system already in place to educate individuals on every new subject or teach new songs, pretty example, because the person learning never mastered the basics but only the outcome, and you had no way to be creative. So, and then if you were to teach the same song using the trivium method, first you would learn how to read music, uh, which would be the knowledge or grammar portion of the trivium, Second, you would learn how to use your fingers and scales, timing, etc. And this would be the understanding or logic portion. And then third, you would learn proper technique and expression, which would be the wisdom or rhetoric portion. Right. So it sounds like outcome-based education keeps you coming back for more as a customer of a teacher instead of that teacher teaching you the one lesson that allows you to learn any other subject on your own much more expeditiously than you can with a teacher in the traditional, what we know as the traditional system of education. Well, and the tools of self-teaching enable you to move forward beyond the limits of your teachers and to become creative on your own. Also allows you to save a lot of money because if you think about it, if you learn how to read to yourself and you just get the curriculum, you can save a lot of money on a college education and go a lot farther and deeper and get a truer education and have these things as a level of understanding because of the method in which you stored this information and learned this information and learned to articulate this information to others. Sure, yeah, once you get it. Yeah, it takes longer at first, but you've got the basis of it, then, you know, you're liberated and you can can teach yourself. Well, and that's what we're talking about as, as far as the liberal arts and the true liberal arts education being lost to modern civilization. And I was hoping maybe for a minute, because I know that Jan authored an article on the meaning of liberal and goes into the etymology and the definitions and the, the history of that word. People throw it around like liberal and Democrat and politics and whatnot. But the, the word liberal comes from a Latin stem, liber, which means book and also means free. So in the ancient Latin language, there was some connotation between books and freedom. 
And the liberal education was meant to free the mind and allow you to see reality as it is. Well, the word liberal is defined as taking from the Oxford English Dictionary, worthy of a free man, directed to general intellectual enlargement and refinement, free from restraint, free in speech and action, freely permitted, free from narrow prejudice, open-minded, free from bigotry or unreasonable prejudice in favor of traditional opinions or established institutions, open to the reception of new ideas or proposals of reform, tending in the direction of freedom or democracy, hence used as a designation of the party holding such opinions. It also goes on opposed to conservative, which is there to conserve current ideas. And antonyms of the word liberal are things like unintellectual, uneducated, closed of heart, selfish, narrow, contracted, mean, small, racist, bigoted, homophobic, stingy, closed-minded, supportive of monarchies and slavery, against freedom of religious expression and speech, low in birth and mind, anti-American. And as I go to say in the article, and I originally wrote this, I think, back in 1997, but basically, if you're out bashing liberals, you're basically all of these antonyms, because this would perfectly describe someone who would go out liberal or freedom bashing and we all have a point in our own development and our own realization but the reason why they've spun the word liberal is because they're trying to attack those that are educated and make education and freedom and things sound bad so it's like the corporations and the fascists who are taking your freedom away they try and make them look like the good guys, so then you attack those that are for individual freedom and the trivium and education and knowledge and logic and rhetoric and those sort of things. All right, so we've got these seven liberal arts, which people may or may not have heard about before, so I kind of like to remember them like a phone number, so it's easy to remember. You have these three thought processes plus these four subjects to categorize your knowledge. The trivium is the three thought processes, the grammar, the logic, and the rhetoric. The quadrivium is the four subject areas, the mathematics, the geometry, the music, and the astronomy. And what you're bringing to the table are your five senses. So let's dissect this three, four, five relationship. Picture in your mind a Pythagorean triangle with sides of three, four, and a hypotenuse of five. The five represents your five senses, sight, smell, vision, hearing, and taste. The four in the triangle represents the four categories of number. Math is number within itself, which doesn't exist in time and space. Geometry is number in space. Music is number in time. And astronomy is number in time and space. The three represents the three steps of rational processing of information and or experience. So the first step is knowledge. That's your grammar. That's your who, what, when, and where. These are the facts of the matter. This is your basic knowledge level. You have your understanding piece. This is your logic. This answers why. This is your understanding of how these different individual pieces fit together, what the proper relationship of all these different individual parts are to each other, and what are the rules of putting these things together. So you can think about it as far as going back to the Lego reference. If you're trying to build a Lego house, then you would look at all the pieces individually. You look at how they're structured together in the house, and then you would actually do that through the action of the rhetoric. So in trying to understand how these things fit together, we're actually looking at a science of reasoning. So this is something that everyone should be armed with 
because you need the science of reasoning. You need this if you're seeking certainty and trying to make informed decisions and, and informed choices in your life. So the truth is not in actual words that a politician or a lawyer or a salesperson is saying. Words in and of themselves are neither true nor false. It's when we put these words together into sentences that truth can be studied. So what we're looking for is a law of non-contradiction. And this law of non-contradiction in the world of words is found through the dictionary. And so when you're speaking with someone, you are depending that the meaning that you intend for the word is the same that the person who's receiving it is getting. So the law of non-contradiction gives words their meaning and propositions, putting these words together, illustrate truth or non-truth. So a basic rule of logic is that a word can't have two meanings at the same time. And where this is exploited through sophisticated techniques would be lawyers and their use of the occult nature of language, the symbolism and multiple meanings of words. Politicians are also infamous for using these types of word games. So the loss of logic equals your loss of right to free choice. Standards of logic are kind of equivalent to standards of morality. So we can use this logic as a universal compass where we have points of mass agreement, like we observe as human beings that there are strong people who prey upon the weak. We also recognize that it's not in our best interest to have others who are in control of our lives and limiting our decisions so they can live like gods at our expense. That's not in our best interest. So it is in our best interest to start studying this, to figure out how to think critically for ourselves, how to think for ourselves, how to learn for ourselves, and start using that and replacing habits where we're getting our time sucked out of our lives and not getting anything valuable in exchange for it. So this theory of seeking certainty is only theory until you put it into practice, and it's how we can in fact learn to discern fact from fiction. So that brings us to the rhetoric part, the wisdom. This is how. This is how things get done. And knowledge becomes wisdom only when shared. So it's about taking the knowledge from the grammar and the understanding that that knowledge brings and actually communicating it to people in a structured manner that enacts wisdom or rhetoric. Now, rhetoric can also be misused, as in the case of the sophists. Sophists are people who use these arguments against us, not necessarily illustrating truth, but rather creating an illusion through which they can take advantage of us and take our power. You could also note that we're exposed to rhetoric every day, all day in advertising, marketing, politics, even cinema, through the set design, the, the wardrobe, and the words themselves used in the script. Rhetoric can be presented to you in kind of a three-dimensional manner. You also see this in the military. This is why they have uniforms and use symbols and communicate through flags and encoded messages and whatnot. These are all different forms of rhetoric. You know, there's a uh, good Ralph Waldo Emerson quote. I am ashamed to think how easily we capitulate to badges and names to large societies and dead institutions. This is where the status quo meets rhetoric. It's a great place to try to learn and understand how all these things come together so we can communicate what we've learned to others because otherwise this is... Uh... I, was just, I was just going to interrupt to read something from Gino Dunning's email on rhetoric or systemic wisdom. The art of persuasively expressing or using knowledge and understanding. Systemic wisdom is not the art of persuasion and explanation itself but the art of selecting the best means of persuasion and explanation from a set of known principles. In its most fundamental form, systematic wisdom is the art of efficiently passing thoughts from one person to others. In its most effective form, it is the art of passing validated thoughts from one person to others. The work of wisdom is the cogently expressed communication of knowledge and understanding, leading to higher levels of knowledge and understanding. 
Through the skilled use of rhetoric, all planned human activity can be communicated and directed. This is a two-edged sword, however. Rhetoric and wisdom can be directed to beneficial or malevolent goals. When a culture's government, education systems, and news media are not corrupt, the constant need for fact-checking is not as critical as it is during the periods of disinformation and propaganda like that which we are currently experiencing. The trivium is the premier method for independent fact-checking. So it's a double-edged sword, and obviously the other side has been using their sword effectively for 2,000 years or more, and they've been covering up our side of the sword. They don't want us to have our edge. So we get our edge back by understanding the foundation of wisdom, and as it's been explained, and it kind of works like this. Just another illustration. You have the attainment of knowledge, perception through your five senses. So that's a type of input. You then apply your logic and your reason to ascertain certainty or understanding, and this is your processing. And then knowledge becomes wisdom only when shared. This is your output. So the input, processing, and output are not only similar to something like your computer, where you have input, processing, and output, but it's exactly what we're doing right here within the peace revolution. We've given ourselves some input. We have taken it upon ourselves to process it. And now we're doing what it takes to communicate it and kind of put it out there and let you try to get your hands around this and, and use some of the attachments and the tools that we're providing along with this podcast to actually start to read through with the outline and to read through with the fallacies and to read through with Gino Denning's email, which he's provided to us with, I think there's uh, 28 pages of notes that go along with all this just in Gene's email. So the point is we're putting a plethora of resources at your fingertips. Let me just bring it full circle one more time. I'd point out that these are all cognitive, not physical processes. So what the trivium allows you to do is to take the physical material world, process it in your mind through your five senses, and this perception will take place, and after you process the information, your mind will translate that into decisions, slash choices, actions, whatever you want to call them. This is the causality. This is the consequence of perception and processing. You actually take action. And when you can take strategic actions, when you know that the steps you're taking are solid and that you're doing a methodical process that has yielded informed decisions for thousands of years, and that it's so important that they had to take it away and censor it and keep it away from us, you know, the fact that you can pass this around to people for free and kind of just take them through the steps and the better that you understand what's going on, the better you can communicate. And that's why we're all practicing kind of here in, because I think it's a very worthwhile tool to learn how to pass around because the act of learning how to pass it around is in and of itself using the other edge of the sword that they don't want us to have access to. So what are the origins of this five, four, three trivium strategy and why aren't more people aware of it today? Well, there's you got the history of the trivium and quadrivium, which is first you've got just innate human learning and our and our natural creative nature, right? So through that you could take our perceptions, which are our knowledge, and the comprehension of those perceptions, which would be our understanding, and then the practical use of those that perception and comprehension, which would be our wisdom. And over time, thousands and thousands of years, that concept gets codified into what later becomes these ancient mysteries and the mystery schools. Jan, you want to talk about Sister Miriam Joseph's book, The Trivium, on page 225, where she says that the Greeks got it from the Sicilians? The art of rhetoric originated in Sicily when democracy was established in Syracuse in 466 BC, and Corax and his pupil Tysius assisted those who had been disposed of property to convince the judges that, that they had a just claim to its restoration. 
Korax put together some theological precepts based principally on the topic of general probability called ECOS. See Aristotle Rhetoric 2.24.9. Tacius developed it further as Plato shows in Phaedrus. Georgius, the Sicilian, came to Athens in 427 B.C., introduced the art of rhetoric into many parts of Greece, and had many disciples, among whom the most admirable and famous was Isocrates, the orator and teacher. Georgius, Protagoras, Prodicius, Antipius emphasized the gracious style, figures of speech, distinction of synonyms, correctness, and elegance in the choice of words and rules of rhyme. Georgius aimed to teach how to convince, independent of any knowledge of the subject. He admittedly taught persuasion, not virtue. Plato and Aristotle condemned the sophists, Georgius, Protagoras, and others for their superficiality and disregard for truth in teaching how to make the worse appear the better cause. Aristotle himself constructed a well-balanced system of the arts of discovering and communicating truth, and his treatise on the subjects profoundly influenced his own and succeeding ages. He systemized rhetoric and made it an instrument of truth. He explicitly claimed to be the founder of the art of logic. His poetics is the beginning of real literary criticism. Logic and rhetoric are concerned with the discovery and communication of truth directly from the mind of the author to the mind of the listener or reader. Poetic is a very different mode of communication, an indirect one that imitates life in characters and situations. Readers or listeners share imaginatively the character's experiences as if they were their own. Yet poetic rises out of knowledge as well as feeling, and logic and rhetoric are employed in the communication of the whole which goes beyond them. Poetic is argument through vivid representation. It kind of shed some light on why Plato in the Republic when describing his utopia, he would ban the poets because these are your ad men. These are the people playing on emotions. These are the people who are telling stories to get you to give money, which in ways that are not empowering to you, that are not doing anything to help you, and it's just wasting your time. So the point is that these problems, again, Plato wrote a book called Georgius where he explained the whole idea of sophism and how it came there. So these are not theories that we're throwing out there. We're introducing you to the lifeblood of Western literary society. So in this, we're learning a little bit about history, but we're also learning about where these ideas of the trivium and quadrivium originated, how they were used. And we see in Greece this documentation that persuasive speech started to be misused against people and used for purposes of power and aggrandizement of the ego, etc. So the book, again, that Jan was referring to is The Trivium by Sister Miriam Joseph. It was printed in the 50s. It's an excellent archive of all the pedantic and heavily documented structure and history of all these things that we're talking about. It's an excellent resource. Actually, and, it was originally uh, published in 1937. <laughs> no, no, you're right. You're right. Uh, Sister Miriam Joseph, the Trivium, 1937. So she introduces us to the Greeks and how the Greeks got this persuasive speech, this sophisticated ideas of using speech and arguing for money. So we're, we're covering it at the time of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and Demosthenes. Now, I'd point out that Aristotle was the teacher of Alexander the Great, and he was buddies with Ptolemy. 
who later became a pharaoh of Egypt and had, had opened and created the Library of Alexandria, which was named after Alexander the Great after he conquered that area. I would also point out that Demosthenes is worshipped by Skull and Bones. This is where their 322 number comes from. Skull and Bones are into the oratory and persuasive speech tactics specifically of Demosthenes, who died in 322 BC. I'd also note that Aristotle died that same year. So, out of these Greek authors, we get the idea that the unexamined life is not worth living, and they're providing us with this system of taking in experience, processing it, and turning it into intellectual action, well-informed decisions, these, these sort of ideas. Now, the Romans come along, you've got guys like Cicero and Quintilian, and this is where persuasive speech really takes a turn, because now these guys are using it to gain power and control large groups of people through the Roman Empire. So you'd see a proliferation of politicians and lawyers who were studying these tactics in the speeches of Cicero, Quintilian, and the earlier Greeks. And so what you have is bubbling up through history the understanding of these tools, then the use of these tools, then the misuse of these tools. And what we're living in right now is a recurring loop of the consequences of not having these tools at our access and in our use every day. So that kind of brings us up to the medieval revival of the trivium. And for a couple hundred years, it was popularized. And what we found out through studying the origins of the Trivium revival or resurrection in the medieval period was that these people were really well informed and what their writings reflect echo what's going on today, which indicates, again, that we have a problem of history kind of repeating itself. So uh, before we get into that, I just wanted to mention that the uh, literally from the Latin, the Trivium means the three way or three roads. And it's where these three <laughs> ideas of grammar, logic, and rhetoric come together. <laughs> I just throw, throw a little comedy in there. <laughs> I wanted to introduce this book from the 12th century. It's called The Metalogicon, a 12th century defense of the verbal and logical arts of the trivium. It was written in 1159 by this character named John of Salisbury. So we just got this book yesterday. I was doing research for the show. It arrived. Lisa and I went through it. And we started realizing that, wow... <laughs> this has been going on for a long time, and people a thousand years ago were looking into this, and you know this book was suppressed for. I well, it was literally composed to defend the arts of verbal expression and reasoning comprised in the trivium. And because it did that well, it was suppressed successfully for 796 years until it was translated in 1955, University of Berkeley. And just yesterday, it made it to us. So uh, the first time we've read this, I've only heard some of these quotes once. And I said, we have to talk about this in the show. Who was John of Salisbury? I'll begin with a quote from John of Salisbury. Man's civilization is the sum of his constructive achievement, the substance of his well-being, the key of his progress. Yet, in the historical development of human culture, one of the most essential and determining factors has forever been education. Paradoxically, education is both a product and a producer of civilization. Besides being the regenerative process whereby man transmits his culture, it is also the revitalizing means whereby he reforms it. Although John of Salisbury was influential in the affairs of his day, John of Salisbury is especially admired by posterity for his writings. Particularly important are his Polycraticus, or Statesman's Book, his Metalogicon, or Defense of the Trivium, and his letters. His Polycraticus is ranked as a medieval classic on political theory. His Metalogicon occupies a similar position in the history of educational theory. 
He is also considered one of the leading letter writers of his day and according to some of all time. So what does Metalogicon mean? The name Metalogicon is of Greek derivation. It's made up of the two Greek words, first about, for, on behalf of, and the second meaning logic, logical studies, or the arts relative to words and reasoning. The author informs us that his title means a defense of or a plea for the studies of the trivium. The Metalogicon was composed to refute attacks made on the trivium by a group whose spokesman John does not name. So what did John of Salisbury have to say about sophism in his time of 1159 AD? He refers to sophistry, which is, quote, seeming rather than real wisdom. Sophistry merely wears a disguise of probability or necessity. It has no care at all for facts. Its only objective is to lose its adversary in a fog of delusions. So that's what all these people that brag about being sophisticated are. That's absolutely right. And if you understand that it ties into a materialistic consumption-based society, then this would all start to make perfect sense about everything you're seeing on TV and in our culture right now. He goes on to say, Sophistry introduces its own reasons or rational methods. At one time, it disguises itself as demonstrative logic. At another, it pretends to be dialectic. Never does it announce its own identity, but always puts on a false front. For it, sophistry, is only quote-unquote seeming wisdom. It often brings about acceptance of an opinion, which is not actually true or probable, but only seems to be so. Sometimes, it even uses true and probable arguments. It is a shrewd deceiver and often sweeps one along by means of detailed interrogations and other tricks, from the evident and true to the doubtful and false. The sophist is satisfied with the mere appearance of probability. At the same time, I am loath to brand knowledge of sophistry as useless, for the latter provides considerable mental exercise while it does most harm to ignoramuses who are unable to recognize it. One who knows what is going on cannot be deceived, and one who takes no steps to avoid a fall which he foresees makes himself responsible. In conclusion, one who will not embrace demonstrative and probable logic is no lover of the truth, nor is he even trying to know what is probable. Furthermore, since it is clear that virtue necessitates knowledge of the truth, one who despises such knowledge is reprobate. Of course, I had to look up the word reprobate. Reprobate means a morally unprincipled person, someone who is shameless. Someone you don't want to do any type of business with. Hence the word probation. So possibly it was this type of talk that when he sent this to Henry II, <laughs> got him in so much. What? This is what created the controversy. So this was the extinction of the trivium? Yeah, absolutely. This is his observation of his status quo in 1159 in what we call the Dark Ages and beginning of the medieval time, right? So we think of these people as backwards and uncultured and, and so forth and etc. However, they had a tight grasp, not only a grasp, but they took it apart, they understood it, and the rhetoric that we have in our hands that was suppressed for 796 years is proof that they were trying to defend 
critical thinking, the use of reason and rationality and other adult intellectual ideas. And they were saying there was too much being done on emotion and fear and the, the use of sophism and sophisticated techniques of persuasive speech to adversely affect audiences, citizenry, however you want to see it in a feudalistic society. He asserts the creator has so arranged the parts of the universe that each requires the help of the others and they mutually compensate for their respective deficiencies, all things being, so to speak, members of one another. All things lack something when isolated and are perfected on being united since they mutually support one another. Deprived of their gift of speech, men would degenerate to the condition of brute animals and cities would seem like corrals for livestock rather than communities composed of human beings united by a common bond for the purpose of living in society, serving one another, and cooperating as friends. If verbal intercommunication were withdrawn, what contract could be duly concluded what instruction could be given in faith and morals, and what agreement and mutual understanding could subsist among men? So it's the publication of this book called the Metalogicon in 1159, which starts to activate critical thinking and, and people in defense of a logical perspective using rationality and common well, what's now found to be uncommon sense, and put this all together. And the consequence of that is the resurgence of the trivium in the medieval period, which leads to the Renaissance and the humanist movement and Thomas More and the humanist movement gets corrupted, but I digress. The point would be there's a resurgence in the trivium. This is used. It's, it's not that far ago, but something happened and all of a sudden it disappeared. And today we've grown up generation after generation for at least a century without these tools at our disposal. Learning without the trivium is like driving without vision. So I don't know how any of us expect to get where we want to be safely without using these tools. And in fact, if you look at most of the research community out there, people run in circles. They, they can't discern. So we need to take the blindfold off. We need to dip into what happened. And what I found was the education given to us through Jan's podcast lectures 49 and 50 with Gino Denning shed a great deal of light. I then looked into it. John Taylor Gatto then points to it in his work. I started to see it everywhere. And it ties back into the idea of the Indian caste system. This is what we call the Prussian education system, which came about after the defeat of the Prussians, who were the Germans, by Napoleon at the Battle of Jena in 1806. It was decided that the reason why the battle was lost was that the Prussian soldiers were thinking for themselves on the battlefield instead of blindly following orders and being obedient soldiers. So what they found out was that their soldiers were too educated and they would not fight because an educated soldier can't fight because it's a hierarchical command structure. And so what they found out was that Napoleon was able to beat them. They had a highly trained professional army, and the Prussian state had tons and tons of money. So they were well-equipped, well-armed, but also well-educated. Once they discovered that the reason they lost was because soldiers weren't following orders, they were questioning command because they were using the trivium for themselves, they said, we've got to take this out of society. And so then they combined philosophical views like that of John Locke in 1690, where children are a blank slate. And then they go through this whole uh, discovery of what we call today psychology. So they start to apply these ideas of restraint and control and Pavlovian techniques of using bells and training kids to be conditioned and programmed rather than learning how to learn. People see how successful this new Prussian education system without the trivium, and it's basically an outcome-based education model, is successful for terms of controlling people, 
keeping them down on the bottom, keeping the caste system as it is with a large lower class that are ignorant and can't take power back for themselves. So they see how successful this is. This starts to be rolled out in the United States in the 1800s where the Germans started giving out PhDs and different degrees because before that, you just needed the degree to learn the trivium. Then you could learn any other subject on your own. There wasn't this necessity to have all these letters after your name. But outcome-based education means you have to keep going back to school and paying 50, 60, 100 grand at a pop to get these little letters after your name. And that makes you important in a sophisticated society. So the bottom line is that the United States started getting its top educators degrees overseas in Germany under this Prussian education system. And then from the top down, the elite foundations and think tanks and other so-called education organizations started to dictate and mandate these principles of outcome-based education throughout America and Canada and Britain. And in America, we used to have a one-room schoolhouse with a school teacher that would teach the trivium, and then kids could actually teach each other. Now it's these huge schools that take hundreds of millions of dollars to run and school districts that are like over budget and firing teachers and whatnot. So all the problems that we see today are a result of this purposeful change taken about a 100 years ago where the trivium was stopped being taught in American schools in in the last schools because they've, they've been taking it out over years. But where they had a full changeover and a change in a mandatory curriculum that's mandated from the top down and is not based in learning. And so what you've got in the in the 20th century are groups like the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, and what the United States Congress found in 1953 and 1954 through their investigation led by Norman Dodd who was a chief researcher who was groomed at their schools with the Trivium at Andover, which is a private school, and at Yale. And when he worked at J.P. Morgan, he became a whistleblower and then worked for the United States Congress as a director of research. He finds out and discovers that in the minutes of the meetings from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, between 1908 and 1911, this group, which is allegedly there to empower our educational institutions, decided to find a formula to undermine the people of America, to undermine our educations, to dumb us down literally, and to use that to control us. And so in discovering that there's congressional reports dealing with this for the past 50 or 60 years, that this information has been out there for thousands of years, and that it successfully keeps getting taken away from people, and the result of that is that people lose their ability to navigate in their life and make informed decisions, I think that we need to just identify a couple places where people can apply and use the Trivium daily, and how does the knowledge and experience of using it build up over time? It's interesting. I'll read a quote from John of Salisbury. He says, Wisdom, without the power of expression, is feeble and maimed. Speechless wisdom may sometimes increase one's personal satisfaction, but it rarely and only slightly contributes to the welfare of human society. Reason, the guardian of knowledge, as well as of virtue, frequently conceives from speech, and by the same means bears more abundant and richer fruit. Reason would remain utterly barren, or at least would fail to yield a plenteous harvest, if the faculty of speech did not bring to light its feeble conceptions and communicate the perceptions of the prudent exercise of the human mind. Indeed, it is in this delightful and fruitful copulation of reason and speech, which has given birth to so many outstanding cities, has made friends and allies of so many kingdoms, and has unified and knit together in bonds of love so many peoples. 
Whoever tries to, quote, thrust asunder what God has joined together for the common good should rightly be adjudged a public enemy. That's a powerful quote. I couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) It's like a callback to his other quote. People deprived of their gift of speech would degenerate to, well, people deprived of their gift of critical and creative thought and the process which the trivium encompasses would, I guess, look like what we have today. Well, at least we can put our finger on it while it's happening to us. Peace revolution. Do you have any closing thoughts, captions, quotes, anything, Rick or Jan? Yeah, it's it's a lot of overwhelming information. And so I think, you know, it's just uh, take a deep breath and grab a dictionary and uh, just start going through the material and trying to make sense of it. Just really have the internet available too, right? Because it's just so simple now to just do a quick search. So whether it's the dictionary or Google. Take the first step and buy, you know, one or two books at a time and read them and follow through with the studies and you'll get your way through it. You know, you don't have to. The nice thing about the trivium, it's that you're teaching yourself and you do it at your own pace. And the more you learn the trivium, the easier it gets to teach yourself and the faster you go. I appreciated Dr. Michael Labozier advice at the end of your podcast he said reflect and think my advice would be people should think and reflect on things before acting we have a tendency to react emotionally or based on feelings and feelings are absolutely okay but we should also question them and the logic or the lack of logic behind them being careful considering things which gets back to the unexamined life not worth living we have an obligation to think and to reason well for ourselves and also for the people around us and for the people who come after us to ensure that future generations have a world that's worth living in that can even sustain them in the next episode of peace revolution we'll be applying what we've learned to the next step in our journey i hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and share it with everyone you know at peacerevolution.org You'll find the tools to embed, email, download, and subscribe to all of our episodes. Thanks to Gino Denning for inspiring creative vibes on our end and passing along his wisdom with no strings attached. Truly an act of faith from which we can all learn. Lastly, references for today's podcast can be found at peacerevolution.org and all the individual files and study guides are posted in the Lost Tools of Learning group at the Tragedy and Hope community. If you'd like to participate and see what happens after people listen to this podcast, send a request to editors at tragedyandhope.com and we'll send you an invitation to get started. Thanks again to tragedyandhope.com for creating this podcast advertisement free. And if you're looking for the others who are realizing what you're realizing, tragedyandhope.com was designed by us to empower subscribers with cooperative understanding that's where we're all at everyone who participates in this podcast participates in some way in the tragedy and hope community subscribe to a higher awareness and share the trivium remember that instead of panicking or feeling anxious throughout the days you can start to think critically reduce your fear and increase your happiness and remember to take care of each other out there thanks for tuning in and not dropping out peace